0: all right so this morning and next week we're going to spend some time talking about the gift of prophecy kind of returning to our spiritual gifts conversation and uh yeah today and next week will be the gift of prophecy so as you can imagine prophecy in general is really an enormous subject and the gift of prophecy is an enormous subject especially in a more Pentecostal and charismatic crowds, sort of like we are. Um, people have a lot of experiences, a lot of personal experiences with the gift of prophecy, and just a lot of ideas of what it looks like and how it should function. So there's just a lot to unpack and uh, to talk about. So as I was thinking about my own experience with the gift of prophecy and uh, stories that I've heard from other people, um, I was thinking about how it seems like the gift of prophecy kind of gets elevated way up into the stratosphere in terms of spiritual gifts. It's like this way up here. And that happens in a couple different ways, and there's lots of ways in between, but these are the two that I was mainly thinking about. The first one being that people sometimes just don't want anything to do with it. You talk to people about operating in the gift of prophecy, they're like, no way, that's way above my pay grade, I don't want anything to do with it, I am not qualified for that at all. And people are just like, mm not me. So that's one way that it's just way up here out of reach. And then another way is, like, it gets elevated to this level of importance for its own sake. And when we do that, when we pursue it just so we can check a box, and saying that this spiritual phenomena happens in my church, which makes my church cool. Check that box. And it's separated from what it's supposed to do, which is edify and build up the body of Christ. It has a purpose. It's not just a neat party trick where, you know, look at all this like jazzy stuff that goes on in our church. We're alive. You know, if you think about the church in Corinth, they had a lot of spiritual gifts operating, and Paul said to them, Your meetings do more harm than they do good because they were missing some really important things, even though they had these gifts operating. So neither one of those things, I think, is from the Lord. I mean, we're the people of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If he can redeem our bodies from death and resurrect us and take us to live in eternity with him forever, don't you think it's reasonable to assume that he can speak through us? via the Holy Spirit, to build each other up and to glorify himself. I don't think that's beyond his capability to use earthen vessels to do that. And at the same time, it's a gift. No one merits it. It's not so that somebody can elevate themselves and glorify themselves. It's to be used in the service and the building up of others. And it's just one part of the experience of all the. You should seek to excel in building up your brothers and sisters around you. I really liked this note in my study Bible about um, the gift of prophecy and what it does, building up the church. It says, the legitimacy of a person's speech in the midst of the congregation is measured by the edification it brings to the body of Christ. That's what it's about. It's not just about having the thing. It's about building up the body of Christ so that he can be glorified in the earth. So since this is such a huge subject, I really want to focus on what does the Bible say about it instead of what do I think about it and all these different things. Let's just look at what's in here about this. And it's far from being a teaching on, a definitive teaching on the gift of prophecy. Basically, I'm just going to talk about prophecy in the New Testament. And we'll see what comes out of that. So we'll start by just talking about the word prophesy and kind of the forms that that comes in, what it even means. And then we'll move into some New Testament examples. And then we'll look at the narrative in uh, the book of Acts and see the gift of prophecy functioning in the early church, what it looks like and the different contexts it happens in. Let's just start with the word Strong's 4395, prophesy. This is the verb form, as opposed to prophecy, which is the noun. So this is prophesy. And it simply means to foretell, to tell forth, to prophesy. So the two things I want you to focus on are these two forms in which prophecy happens. It's a forthtelling and a foretelling. I liked the way that this helps word studies defines forth telling and foretelling. In the New Testament, prophesy occurs 28 times, usually of forth telling, which reveals the mind or message of God in a particular situation. Prophesy can also refer to foretelling, i.e., predicting the future as the Lord reveals it. So you have foretelling which is the predicting of future events, especially those concerning the coming kingdom of God via divine empowerment. And then you have forth telling, telling something forth, which is speaking God's message into a specific situation or declaring the glories of God, the truth of God. And that's also done under divine empowerment when we're talking about prophesying. Forth telling, foretelling. We're going to come back to that a lot as we talk about this. I want to give you a few examples of both fourth and four. And a lot of this occurs in the pregnancies and births of Jesus and John the Baptist. And a lot of times they're mingled together. So let's look at a couple of examples there. So it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 is where we're going to start. And this is Zechariah after he um, says, he writes down the babies to be named John, The baby's name is John, and his tongue is freed, and he can speak again. This is what he says. And see if you think that this matches up with your traditional idea of what it means to prophesy. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So that's really long, but I want to break it down a little bit so you can kind of see where Zechariah starts with forth telling. He's talking about the glories of God, the truth of God, the works of God, the things that he has done. He's foretelling. Then he moves into foretelling. He's talking about John. He's talking about this specific child. You will be called a prophet of the Most High. You're going to go before the Lord and prepare his ways. These are things that are going to happen. He's predicting the future according to the Spirit. So you can see a little mixture of both there. Let's look at the example Um, with Elizabeth when she is pregnant with John, and she's visited by Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus. Luke chapter 1, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. So this doesn't specifically say that Elizabeth prophesied, but I'm comfortable calling it that because of the parallels here. You see, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. It says she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it resulted in this utterance. Um, that speaks forth the message of God. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill what he has spoken to her. Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. So she's speaking forth the mind and the message of God in this specific situation. She's telling it forth. So those are a couple examples. I'm going to round it out just even more specifically before we move on into Acts. Well, this is from Acts, but there's more from Acts. So let's look here. Two examples. Foretelling. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. So given the context, they most likely weren't predicting the future in Mass. They were declaring the glories of God. They were glorifying God. And then the foretelling here. Uh, is from Acts chapter 11. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Those are just a couple concise examples of what I mean when I say foretelling and what is foretelling. You can see he was predicting a future event there according to the Spirit. So now I think, let's see, Oh, one other thing before we start moving into examples of the gift of prophecy functioning in the early church. There's another thing associated with the word prophesy, and it's what we might call um, a word of knowledge. And I don't really see much worth in separating a word of knowledge from prophesying because it's kind of like splitting hairs. So this uh, word of knowledge, this would be knowing something that can only be known by divine revelation. And a good example of this would be um, John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, the woman replied. Jesus said to her, you are correct to say that you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband, You have spoken truthfully. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. So she calls him a prophet because he knows something that he can only know through divine revelation. So that's kind of the word of knowledge, prophecy, crossover that's probably not worth parsing out. So that's not much of what we'll talk about. We're going to talk more about the previous two, the foretelling and the foretelling. All of today's examples are going to be from Acts, from the early church. And a lot of it, not by my plan, it just kind of came about this way, was um, stuff that happened with the church at Antioch. But before we get into those things, I just want to give you a few criteria to look for. So as we talk about these stories, I want you to look and see... The gift of prophecy operating in these stories, can we see its functions? Can we see how it works? And so a few characteristics. These come from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and Ephesians 4. Those two things together are arguably the most concise definition of the gift of prophecy and what its function is. So here's a few characteristics. First of all, it's intelligible speech. I don't mean that in the way that it's dependent on your intelligence, but intelligible in that you can understand it, as opposed to tongues. You don't understand tongues just with your regular brain, but you can understand prophecy because it's intelligible speech. You can understand what I'm saying. So there's that. It speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouragement, and their consolation. And this results in them being built up. It equips God's people for the work of ministry. It creates unity in the faith and knowledge of Jesus. And it grows people into maturity measured by Christ's fullness. That's important. It grows them into a maturity that is measured by the fullness of Christ. So those are our main criteria. left my water over here. Um, that we'll look for as we look at those, these stories. All right, we'll start here in Acts chapter 11. So we already talked about the scripture, but we're going to go further into it. Acts 11:27. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. So the people in the church here, they heard a future predicting prophecy, and they responded. They responded with action. So when Agabus gives this prediction, and it comes true, the church isn't like, what a neat party trick. Congratulate us on our awesome secret knowledge and all the power that we have. (laughs) they take action and they they respond and this surely think about your criteria this surely strengthened encouraged and consoled those that were suffering from the famine it certainly did that it equipped both the givers and the receivers for the work of ministry it definitely brought unity and it surely brought maturity it really brought that maturity that's measured by the fullness of Christ Think about those that were giving. As they were at the church in Antioch. And it says that the famine was throughout the entire Roman Empire. So Judea and Antioch are only separated by about 300 miles. So when these guys receive this prophecy from Agabus, their reaction isn't like, uh-oh, we should save our own skins because this famine is going to come for us. This isn't even very far from us. It's the whole Roman Empire. How can we plan to take advantage of this and care for ourselves? Their response is to be self-sacrificial, to give generously through faith. Their response is essentially to live like Jesus. And as I thought about this, I thought how important it is whenever we are, when we receive a prophetic word, or uh, we're in a corporate setting where there's a prophetic word given, you know, we should ask the Holy Spirit, what should, what should our response be to this? Uh, what do you want us to do? Is there something you want us to do? I don't want to get into like legalistic, religious performance. Now you have to respond and do some big, crazy faith thing. But I think it's important for us to ask, is there some sort of response that you want us to have right now in action? To, to what you've declared among us. I think we should just honor him in that way. And that's what they did here. And it motivated them to this unselfish Christ-like living, to support their brothers and sisters. Let's move on to Acts chapter 13. So in this one, um, you've kind of got like a corporate type of setting. Agabus comes, he gives this to you know a group of people, and they kind of move as the church, as the body to help supply to the church itself. So let's see what the context is for the next one, because the context of these stories is varied, um, which is part of what makes it interesting how the um, gift of prophecy functions. Acts 13.1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So this doesn't say um, exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke. I think it's reasonable to assume that, the, that it was not an audible Disembodied voice that just came into the room and said, Set set apart Paul Paul and Barnabas. I think it's reasonable to assume that the Holy Spirit spoke through a mediator, through a prophet, and um, told them to do this. And it doesn't mention specifics on how they knew where to send Paul and Barnabas. It seems like they did know, but that could have been given at the same time. That could have been revealed as well through the gift of prophecy. And through this gift, this initiates Paul's first missionary journey, which, I mean, that's pretty important, right? Paul's missionary journeys is where we get most of our New Testament, so that's kind of a big deal. And It's not just the gift of prophecy that's playing a part here. There's people that are engaged in helps. There's people that are administrating. There's people that are giving generously. There's people that are teaching and that helped build Paul up there's prophets, there's definitely evangelists, there's apostolic things. All of this stuff is coming together holistically to further the expansion of the church. And it's just this awesome, really dynamic um, work of the Spirit that's causing all of this expansion and just the blossoming of all the people that are a part of this body. So that was also kind of like, in this context, they're fasting they're praying, they're worshiping the Lord. It's a little different context than our first story. And then this, the gift of prophecy, comes forth, and Paul and Barnabas are sent out. So slightly different context. Let's look at the next one. So this is the scripture where we're going to end up. I'll go ahead and read it, but afterwards I'm going to do some backtracking and give you some context. Acts 15.30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they assembled the congregation and delivered the letter. When the people read it, they rejoiced at its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. See our words there, encourage and strengthen. This is a message that's being brought by two people that are prophets. So let's back up and talk about what's the context that Judas and Silas are prophesying into um, right here. So this is happening in the church at Antioch. And that was an important center for uh, the Gentile mission of the church. Back in Acts 11, when Stephen is martyred, it causes this dispersion. So people are scattered because a persecution arises. And as they're scattered, they go out and they begin to evangelize. And it says that at first, they were just speaking to the Jews. But then there was a few people who started to speak to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles received the Spirit. They received the message, the good news, and uh, they found that, oh, the Gentiles also have the Holy Spirit. Like, they're being included in this whole thing. And so the Gentile mission begins to spread. And it says, I think two or three times here, that many were added to their number at the church in Antioch. So, this is such a big deal that news of it reaches Jerusalem. Like, there's all this ruckus up there, and Gentiles are being saved. So, the church in Jerusalem, which is still the focal point, is still the main mission base of the church, sends Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. Like, see if this is legit that Gentiles are also being included in the family of God. So, he goes and checks it out, and he's like, yeah, this is real. This is really happening. And this is such a big deal, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. That's why our New Testament talks about it so, so, so much. And we're not Jewish, so it doesn't land quite the same for us. But this was a really big deal that they were also receiving the Holy Spirit, that they also had this evidence of being made new and included in this. And many, many people are being added to this, and it's all awesome and uh all exciting. The spirit is doing awesome things. Then chapter 15 happens. It says that some men come from Judea and they try to modify this good news that is just radicalizing, just changing all these people. They try to modify it. They say that unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you can't be saved. I mean, can you imagine that? This is a body of Gentile believers. They're coming into this whole new family. They have this new indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Their lives are being completely changed. They're in this fellowship of people that has never existed before. Like all of these incredible things are happening. They're experiencing the love of Jesus through the Spirit. They have a whole new identity. And then somebody comes and says, actually, you're an imposter. You are fake. That is not real. And if you really want that, then you have to do these works here. I mean, I can't imagine how deflating that must have been for them. So discouraging, so confusing to this big group of Gentile believers. Paul, descri- it was an insidious situation. Paul describes it in Galatians 2. He says that these people came and they infiltrated to spy on the freedom that they had in Christ and to bring them back into slavery. They're trying to bring them back under slavery to the law by making it a requirement for salvation that they're circumcised. And all of this ruckus results in the Jerusalem Council. So Peter is there, Paul is there, there's other leaders, there's these Judaizer people who want to say that you have to be circumcised to be saved and all of this. And they all come together as a Jerusalem Council. And this is detailed in Acts as well. And at this council, it's decided that circumcision and adherence to Jewish ceremonial law is not required for salvation. And a letter is sent back to Antioch confirming this decision. So this is the letter that we're talking about here. The one from the Jerusalem council that says, you don't in fact have to be circumcised for salvation. So when the people read this letter... These Gentile believers, of course, they rejoiced at its encouraging message. And then, not only did they get this letter, they have Judas and Silas who come to them, these prophets, and they speak to them to encourage and strengthen them. That was so important. Not only that they got this verification through the letter, but then through the Spirit, through the gift of prophecy, two people came to them and said, you are included. You are loved. You are part of the family of God. You are saved by grace and faith, not by works of the law. It is on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and his blood. It's not about how hard you could perform. They came and spoke that to them after this trial of their faith, this crisis in their faith. And um, that was certainly strengthening and encouraging to them. I mean, it just... Would have been like a salve over an open wound to just bring them back into peace. They got attacked by people that tried to come and take their freedom from them and it says that they did this in this particular version it says said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. Some other versions say they they strengthened and encouraged the brothers with many words <laughs> so that sounds like this sounds more like a uh, upfront type of setting. Like sounds like these two guys kind of talking, addressing a group of people. Maybe similar to what we would call preaching. So that's the kind of setting and context. Do you see how the diff- the contexts are different? It's just the gift of prophecy coming forth in lots of different ways, and I say that to say like don't put it in like one particular box where this is the only way it looks, or this is the only place it functions, because it's happening in a lot of different ways. All right, so let's see. So far, we've been talking about foretelling and foretelling, mostly in a corporate type of setting, or um, more of a church type of setting. Let's talk about it more in interpersonal ways, like toward individuals and within interpersonal relationships. We'll look at Paul for this. So this is Paul talking in Acts chapter 20. He says, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So let's talk about a couple things in here. He says that the Holy Spirit warns me of chains and afflictions. How is the Holy Spirit warning him? What is that looking like? So I think it's reasonable um, that it is both prophets. Warning Paul that he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit speaking to Paul personally that he is going to suffer in Jerusalem. And uh, later on, we're going to see examples as he travels through these towns of prophets telling him, You are going to suffer in Jerusalem. And also, I think the Holy Spirit was speaking to him about this because he knew that he had to go anyway. So it sounds like there's been some interaction between him and the Spirit, and he knows that he is going to endure. And he's going to go forth and continue his mission despite the fact that these sufferings um, are are going to be present. So it sounds kind of like prophecy from other people. And what Paul was hearing himself is all kind of confirming each other. This is still incredibly difficult. I mean, (laughs) he's receiving this prophecy. You're going to suffer and you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) And back to that whole building up somebody into the maturity that's measured by the fullness of Christ, that's like the definition of this whole situation. It reminds me of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. Paul is going to Jerusalem to suffer. Jesus went to Jerusalem to suffer. He went out of obedience. Remember when Isaiah prophesied of Jesus that even though Jesus would suffer, Jesus' response was, my God helps me. I'm not disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like a flint, and I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. That was Jesus' stance, and that is Paul's stance, because he is being brought up into the maturity that is measured by the fullness of Christ. Luke says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Paul is living in that time he's compelled by the spirit he knows his his mission he's convinced of his purpose and he's going to fulfill it he's going to do it he also says this part kind of cracks me up he says that he doesn't know what he's going to encounter there he knows he's going to suffer but I don't know what I will encounter there. So despite all this prophetic activity that Paul is encountering as he's making his way to Jerusalem, some specifics are not revealed to him. It's almost like we know in part and we prophesy in part, right? I mean, that's what's happening here. And uncertainty is not entirely dispelled. It's not as if Uh, Paul could get all the information and know all the different ways he's going to suffer so that he could logically say yes or no. So that he could be like, I don't really know if I want to do that. I'm just going to peace out. (laughs) He had to live with that uncertainty. And we all find uncertainty uncomfortable on some level. Wouldn't it be nice if, you know, God would just send a prophet to just please give me an answer on what I should do? You know the future. Could you please just tell me exactly what I should do? That'd be great. That doesn't usually happen, right? There's this level of uncertainty um, where it might have, it might have been tempting to say, if I could just know exactly what was going to happen, then I could really count the cost. Instead of that, the Holy Spirit empowers him to obedience through faith. He's able to say yes through faith instead of just, knowing all the right answers. So moving on, he continues on his journey. His ship arrives in Tyre to unload cargo. And during this time, he's got a little bit of like a layover. And uh, this is what happens there. He gets off the ship. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So these people, these prophets tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But wait a second. Haven't we just spent a whole bunch of time talking about how Paul is supposed to go to Jerusalem, right? He's supposed to go. He's compelled by the Spirit to do it. It's his purpose. Is that all true? Yes, that is all true. So what's happening here? As I was reading this, I thought, this is something that we can meditate on as we seek to See the gift of prophecy operating in our midst as the church. We should meditate on this. They heard right. They knew that Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem. They heard right, but then they admonished Paul to save his skin. They added an imperative, an action onto that because they love him. (laughs) They love Paul. They don't want to lose him. They don't want to see him suffer But they misunderstood the times, and they forgot who Paul belongs to. He doesn't belong to them. You know, no matter how much you love somebody, they don't belong to you. (laughs) They belong to God. Remember, like Peter, he got it right enough to say that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that, but then when Jesus told him, okay, well, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I have to be arrested, and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, oh, no, you are not. That shall never happen to you, Lord. What is Jesus' response when Peter says that? He says, Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the concerns of men, not the concerns of God. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's what Paul's doing. He's denying himself, he's taking up his cross, and he's following after Jesus. Now, these people that love him and don't want to see him suffer, do you think they're setting out to make his dark night of the soul worse? I mean, can you imagine that you're saying yes to an incredibly difficult thing with Jesus? You're taking up your cross. You're following after him in obedience. And you know that there's going to be a suffering before you. And then people that love you come up to you and say, don't do this. Like, you don't have to do that. I don't, you don't have to suffer. Don't go. Just don't go. You're just going to make it harder for him. Like, it just adds to the whole struggle of the whole thing. And I don't think that was what they intended, but they just misunderstood the times. Thankfully, Paul did not. So, moving on, this continues to be a theme as Paul goes toward Jerusalem. Acts 21. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus.' Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more, except the Lord's will be done. <laughs> so Paul is hes basically saying, stop making this harder for me than it has to be. <laughs> why, are you, why are you trying to hold on to my earthly body when I have to go do this thing? Again, this is like Jesus' Garden of Gethsemane moment. This is Paul's Garden of Gethsemane moment. Remember Jesus After he's literally sweating blood, submitting his will to the Father, no one else can even stay awake with him. And he's just like going through this dark night of the soul, submitting himself to the will of God. He then has to tell Peter, dude, put your sword away. Don't be cutting off people's ears. Should I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And this is the same situation for Paul. He knows the cup he's got to drink. It's tough. Don't make it tougher. So this is all really, really, really challenging. I mean, can we agree that these prophetic words are incredibly challenging that that Paul is receiving? They don't sound very uplifting, right? Like if we had a prophet come here and we had like a prophetic gathering to prophesy over us and one of you received this prophecy, would you be like, what a false prophet? (laughs) Because that's not very uplifting. That doesn't build me up very much. It does. It fits the criteria for encouraging, strengthening, comforting, and building up. It does. These prophecies, they built Paul up on a level that is much deeper and much different than just feeling good about his potential in the Lord and all of that. You know, it wasn't just a feel-good thing. They empowered him to be able to count the cost of following Jesus and to still say yes I can see I'm going to suffer, but you're all that matters to me, so I say yes. And I think that as he met these words that seemed terrible, I think he was also immediately comforted by the grace um, to endure the suffering that was before him. It definitely helped produce in him a maturity in Paul that was measured by Christ's fullness. I mean, that was definitely present. I say all that just to say we should be careful that we don't too narrowly define what's considered strengthening, encouraging, comforting, and building up because it is not about and it's not about just avoiding pain and danger and discomfort. It's about empowering believers to live according to the spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit speaking to people so they can live like Jesus and be empowered to do the things that jesus did it's not about feeling good in our flesh and and i'm not saying that every single prophetic word you get has to be incredibly challenging sometimes it's not and prophetic words shouldn't condemn people that's definitely not the case either but they can be challenging so let's just not too narrowly define something if it's a little challenging to us so that's all for today Next week, we'll kind of go more into some of the uh, one-liner things, kind of like, uh, you know, you should test prophecy and all these different things. We'll, we'll talk about a lot about 1 Corinthians 14 um, next week. And also some characteristics of false prophecy, which might surprise you. All right, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord, Lord, um, We do desire the spiritual gifts, Lord, so help us to be desirous uh, and excelling to build up the church. Help us to speak words of love over each other, because those are truly words of the Spirit. Help us to lift each other up, to bless each other. And Lord, we just trust you to speak through us, to speak your mind and your message, your heart, through us to each other, Lord. Lord. And I pray that you would do that mightily. Help us to submit to you and not to a spirit of fear, but to the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. We thank you that you move through us, that you put your, cl- your treasure in these jars of clay. And we just trust you to do everything that you said that you would do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.